I often, you know, we all go through busy weeks where we're rushing and hustle and bustle, and even just to get here. Um, I'm thankful I have one child, not a whole pack of kids to load up in the van. Um, and I'm thankful that my commute, as you know, is pretty easy. But there's still an aspect where we come here and it's like, we're in a safe place with people that love us and love the Lord, and we can worship him. Amen. So I would encourage you that when pastor leads us in prayer later on, that in your mind and in your spirit, you shut the door to the outside world with all the hassles and say, no, I'm, I'm here for the next hour and a half or two hours to worship the risen Savior to minister to my brothers and sisters, and perhaps to have them minister to you. Uh, we have one primary spokesman, Pastor Layton, but that doesn't mean that you can't do the one another's. And I believe that God is sovereign, and that his providence extends through all the many aspects of the universe, that he can hold everything together. But I also think that he has put you here today because somebody needs you or you need somebody. So don't think just because you're not preaching or leading the music that you have no value or no purpose. First, our purpose is to worship our risen Savior. But a secondary purpose, not in to diminish it, is to minister to one another and to be ministered to. Um, I hope you have the freedom to talk to somebody and say, I need a hug, or I need you to pray with me. I've had people come up with that, come up to me or say, would, would the elders pray for me? Um, and you may not want the elders to do that, but you might want somebody like Mary or Angela, Gail. You pick it. I don't want to pick every lady here because there's too many. But don't hesitate to reach out to somebody and say, you're my brother, you're my sister. I need something. So with that, just a few announcements. Um, Wednesday night, we're going missions in July, if you haven't noticed. Um, Steve McAllister, one of the primary leaders with Anchored in Truth, will be our guest speaker during our Wednesday night Zoom meeting. And he's in Africa or just coming back from Africa, so he'll have some really cool stuff to share with us. And... Don't be shy with asking questions when Pastor opens it up, because if you don't ask the questions, Pastor Wayne will. Um, and he's one of our missionaries in a sense, so feel free to ask him questions. The only other announcement is for moms and dads with youth choir practice. It'll be on the 30th after our fellowship meeting, so put that on your calendar. And if you want to, Go over and take a look at the, the choir room because it's looking really nice thanks to Amber's efforts. Helped a little too, didn't it? <laughs> I just said yes, ma'am. Okay. Right, our reading today from the Gospels is from the book of Mark, uh, chapter 8. Jesus feeds the 4,000. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. 
And if I sent them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them <coughs> have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples and set them before the people. And they... <coughs> And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said to these, also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Delmathua. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we're thankful that we have a Lord who does have compassion on each and every one of us, Lord, who will not let us go away hungry, Lord, and who feeds us spiritually but also will take care of us in our, our physical needs also. Father, that <clears throat> he has set an example for us, Lord, here in this uh, description. Lord, help us to truly uh, consider this, that we would have a heart like Christ in our lives. We ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Let's take our hymn books and stand and turn to number 448 as we sing to the Lord this morning. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. 448.
to number 83. Be thou my vision. I have set the Lord always before me. Psalm 16, 8. turn to number 453 453 leaning on the everlasting arms the god of the of old is your dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms deuteronomy 33 453 
may be seated. Good morning, church. Today we'll be looking at the 11th chapter of Acts, Acts 11.19 through verse 5 of chapter 12. And they can be found in your pew Bible on, starting on page 920. I'll describe just a bit about the historical background first. Mention is made of a famine which took place in the days of Claudius. He was Roman emperor from 41 to 54 AD with the famine taking place in Palestine in 45 to 46. The King Herod referenced to here was King Herod Agrippa I, the grandson of Herod the Great, who was king at the time Jesus was born, and the nephew of Herod Antipas, who had beheaded John the Baptist. The gospel was preached to the Gentiles as well as the Jews in Antioch, the third largest city in the Roman Empire after Rome and Alexandria. And many of the Gentiles believed. And of course, uh, probably everyone here is of Gentile background, so we can be grateful that the Gentiles received the gospel there in Antioch. Also, the term Christian, which first came to be used here in Antioch, was likely invented as a derogatory term for the disciples by Gentile unbelievers. Peter, we'll see, had four squads of four men each assigned to guard him in prison. Uh, one group of four men for each of the four watches of the night. And the precaution of such attention was perhaps being due to the difficulty in keeping Peter contained. As recorded for us in Acts chapter 5, where Peter had somehow inexplicably gotten out of prison, uh, inexplicably, of course, by the point of view of the authorities. So we'll see how well those precautions work out in next week's reading. Now let us hear the word of the Lord. Acts 11, starting with the 19th verse. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. 
Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus uh, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let us now look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come before you in Jesus' name, we thank you for all he did on our behalf, pouring out his life blood for us and becoming our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. We pray now that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, that the church may be full, that you'd sanctify us in the truth and equip us for living holy lives, pleasing to you, O Lord. You will make worthy everyone who follows you. We are rejected without the wedding garment, however, the clothes of your compassion, the veil of your grace. We pray that you'd provide that garment for everyone. We are unworthy of your grace, O Lord, having sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. The evil that we would not that we've done, while the good which we would, we've not done. Wash us then and make us whiter than snow. Make each of us ready to meet you at any time, as James the brother of John did in our passage. But if you choose to give us continued life, may we use it to bring you honor and glory. Draw near to us now then. Grant that our hearts would be open to receive your word and that it would come with power to us. May we put it into practice in our lives, being doers of your word and not hearers only. Have mercy upon us then and hear our prayer. For Jesus' sake, amen.
take your hymn books once more and stand and turn to number 340. A beautiful hymn of describing scripture and its power. Words of God, word of God across the ages. For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any two-edged sword. Hebrews 4, 12, 340. Amber and Church. And let's turn into that book, Hebrews chapter 8. I invite you. Hebrews chapter 8. We titled this message Heavenly Worship. It could be titled True Worship. I think you'll make the connection of why we chose heavenly in particular. The worship that we have of God in Christ Jesus is ordered by, regulated by, Jesus Christ himself, who indeed is our only mediator, a great high priest. This sermon in the book of Hebrews points to that very thing. From the very beginning to the very end, it points to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. We are at really the focus of that, where that point is repeated and specifically says so in verse 1 of chapter 8. Now the point we're saying is this, we have such a high priest. That's really what you need to know about the book of Hebrews. It's a focus on 
the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ, who is indeed our high priest. This such a high priest is not just looking backwards in time or forward even, but right now. We, we have this high priest right now. We have this mediator. He's greater than all that preceded, greater than all that may attempt to supersede. The brightness of his glory outshines them all. Remember how he began in verse 3 of chapter 1, speaking of this high priest, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Can, can there be a higher position, a more exalted one than Jesus Christ? He is risen from the dead. He is ascended into heaven. And now as we looked at seated in all authority. And yet, even in this position, he functions also as our advocate, as our mediator, as our high priest, making intercession for those that are in Christ forever. God ordained various religious structures. And particularly in the prior dispensation, as it's mentioned here in the book of Hebrews. He ordained rituals, regulations, rules, if you will. But all of those had a point. And the point is they serve to point to the reality, who is this particular one? Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews says these are shadows pointing to the reality. This is the main point that he's saying, and he he makes that very statement in verse 1. By implication, don't go chasing shadows. Find refuge in the substance, the reality, the glory, if you will, the brightness of who Jesus Christ is. There's a shift then in verse 6, which we'll get into next week. He's going to direct his attention then and point towards a new covenant, as it's called, in contrast to the old covenant, an agreement and a promise. The the audience to whom he was speaking were very familiar with the old covenant, in particular the, the Mosaic covenant. Christ has fulfilled all of it. No one else had. He fulfilled all righteousness, that is, he merited in perfection all that the law required. He was the only one that ever did. He's the only one that ever could. There's none that came before him that did any better. They were far worse. And there's none that could come after him who could do any better. So the point is to then look at Christ. This new covenant here is fulfilled by Jesus Christ. He atones for then sin by his own sacrifice, a final sacrifice, a single sacrifice, and that then necessitates a different order, if you will, a different covenant. 
and we'll address that in weeks to come. But today, I'm really going to take one more glance at the first five verses, and particularly verse 5, to remind us of the significance of the instructions given under the Old Covenant concerning the replicas, if you will, which pointed to Jesus Christ. And there are many applications then in this content. But overall, I'd like us to see one main issue from then and even now. Whatever we're engaged in in our rituals of worship, to be reminded of the reality of Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest. Even in those structures that are specifically ordered, it isn't those structures that bring about salvation. It isn't those structures that are going to bring about sanctification. It is this one, this person, Jesus Christ, to which all point to. Let's read it in its context, and then we'll unfold some of those concepts. Look at verse 1. Now the point, 8-1, that we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent, and, and that's a, an important word, the true tent, that the Lord sent up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, and thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve, they serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. When Moses was about to erect a tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Let us pray. Father, I do pray we would hear and heed your word today. Give us insight into your truth through the illumination of the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. True worship, as it's mentioned, this true tent and, the, and this statement about these heavenly things, they, they parallel one another, pointing to that which is real, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ orders and ordains and, I'll use a term which will un- unfold in a bit, regulates the very church in which he is a high priest of, this church. It's Jesus' church. It's Jesus' church, and he describes the church in this way, not in a physical building per se, but in a spiritual building, as Peter would mention in 1 Peter chapter 2. Those that are in Christ then by way of analogy, are brought together as living stones, Christ being the chief cornerstone. His church is also described as his bride, 
Another beautiful analogy. A bride that is then given to him by his father. The church is described as, as his, his body. A body with many members where each individual engages and does their part, but they're unified with one head, the Lord, Jesus Christ. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. He describes his church as his beloved. His beloved that are brought into sacred union with God and blessed with an eternal love that can never be severed. You couldn't lose your salvation because you couldn't sever the love between the Father and the Son. It's impossible. And that's what keeps us secure. And we are made one with the beloved, and thus the church is thought of as the beloved. If you're in Christ, that's who you are. And it's helpful to be reminded of that from time to time. There may come moments in which you feel that you're not loved by various people or maybe a group of people, maybe an individual. You feel alone, abandoned, but you're not in Christ. And he promised in John 14, if you remember one of my favorite texts, I will not leave you as orphans. As evil as I am, I, I wouldn't abandon my children. I love them. How much more Christ whether it's described as his beloved sons and daughters or his lovely bride or his own body, the edifice, the building, the temple, not made out of bricks and mortar, not made by hands, but the true by Christ. You see, all of this, this gathering together, this building, the body, the bride, the beloved, all of this is the very work of this mediator, Jesus Christ, our great high priest. All of it is ultimately accomplished by him. It isn't of our doing. It isn't of our ingenuity. It isn't of our scheming and structures and ability to put nice things together. You see, all of this gathering together is done by Christ who reconciles us to God. Jesus said, I will build my church. Matthew 16, 18. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's unstoppable. We'll see snippets of it here and there, and particularly if you get a chance to even go to foreign lands, which we're going to hear a great report coming from Africa and what's going on in there. But all over the world and every place that I've been, there are those that love Jesus Christ. And how does that happen? It isn't by our organization, by our orchestration, and whatever else we do. It is ultimately by the very work of Christ who says, I will do this, and nothing can stop him. 
Why does Christ build his church? What is he about doing? It's in this word, and I think you should hang on to it. It's called glory. His glory, which is our greatest good. When we use the word glory, it it just seems kind of like a cliche at times, but it's a very significant word and one to hang on to. Technically, I would describe God's glory as the beauty of his divine attributes. That's a good short way to describe it. But beauty is hard to describe, isn't it? Have you ever thought about it? What makes something beautiful? Is it the symmetry? Is it just the way it works out? I don't know. But you know it when you see it. And God is the most beautiful in every aspect of who he is. In this life, we simply look at shadows and not the fullness. We get a glimpse, no doubt. And there are times in which we we behold some aspects. The psalmist would say the heavens are declaring his glory. And if you take a moment and look, you'll, you'll see some of that beauty. Even in a cursed earth. Stained by sin, marred by our evil. You'll still see the beauty even in his creation. Even in humanity. Even in fallen humanity. If you look close enough. God does everything ultimately for his glory. For his glory means to, be, to, to manifest the beauty of that divine perfection which happens to be our greatest good and our greatest joy when we are ultimately united with god in the fullness of his presence there is fullness of joy joy unspeakable joy to the point to where we will have been given the capacity to actually receive it in its fullness God does everything for his glory to manifest it. it. I'd say, I'll just read a snippet. Isaiah 43 talks about when he will bring about the redemption of his people. E- even Israel, both the north and the south, who were destroyed north in 722, south of 586. And yet here is this call from the prophet Isaiah. I'll just read it for you, 43, 6. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, and everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. Whom I formed and made. That's why God does anything. It's a manifestation of the beauty of his divine perfections, his glory. We read in the New Testament, one of my favorite books, the book of Ephesians. 
And in the first chapter, as he unfolds this redemption that is in Christ Jesus, that, that doesn't begin in time, it began before time. And God had always ordained to plan to do that. And three times you'll see this phrase in the first chapter. Why does he do this? For the praise of the glory of his grace. That's why God does anything for his glory. These physical aspects, these rituals and regulations and whatever else has been put in place, all of that is to point to something far greater. The point is don't get so bound up in those aspects because they are but shadows. And that's what the preacher of Hebrews is communicating. It has always been this way. These artifacts were just meant to point to Christ. If you want to, turn to John chapter 4. Here's a section where Jesus explains this. John chapter 4, you may be familiar with the woman in the well. Here's Jesus going through Samaria. John chapter 4, I'll begin at verse 19. The Jews didn't have anything to do with the Samaritans. The Samaritans were a mixed race, half Jewish and half whatever else, Gentile. It was part of the strategy when they were destroyed to obliterate them. And so they kind of hung on to half of the truth and folded in some paganism and kind of had their own religion. They accepted the first five books. We call it the Pentateuch. They had a different concept of what was going on. And Jesus shows up to tell her about the water of life himself. She says in verse 19, I perceive that you're a prophet. And then now she goes to, to look at those ritual aspects. She says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. She talked about Gerizim. But, but you say, speaking of the Jews, that, you should, that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. God had ordered and ordained that, yes, there would be a temple in Jerusalem. So Jesus responds to her, verse 21. He says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. What's he talking about? Well, because she doesn't know what she's doing. Verse 22, you worship what you don't know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. That is how God had ordained it to come about. But he says, but the hour is coming, and note this, verse 23, and is now here, that when the true worshipers will worship the Father in, note this, spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. 
Worship God in spirit and truth. And it is now here, he says, all of what has come before. And God did ordain a proper way for that ritual to come about. It came through the Jews. It isn't to be uh, mixed with anything else. God had specifically given orders and regulations. She wasn't going to create your own religion idea. But even that which God had ordained, it it was to point to something else, a heavenly worship, a true worship, a worship in, note this, spirit and truth. Spirit referring to the spirit of a man, that is the immaterial as opposed to the material, right? It, It isn't these Relics. It never was these relics. It never was these objects that were worship in and of themselves. They were all pointing to that which is true, to that which is heavenly. They were just shadows. They were physical engagements for sure. You could see the smoke coming up off the incense to, to represent prayers, but they really weren't prayers. Prayers are prayers in spirit, what we actually pray. And this physical blood that was shed, it was only a picture of what was to happen in reality when Christ would really atone. These physical aspects were purposeful to bring about true worship. And God must be then and now always worshipped in, note this, spirit and truth. There is a truth to our content, and it's done through the spirit of the man. Why? Verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. This gets beyond the the ritual to the reality. What is he calling from? What is the spirit? We, we might say the heart or the mind. The heart and mind of man. It's going to come about through the mediatorial work of Christ. And the, these rituals and these relics, even the ones that are ordained, they are to call us to this type of true worship, not the object in and of itself. It is to bring us to Christ. And so the woman says to him, notice verse 25, well, I I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. Christ means in Greek is Messiah, the deliverer, the Savior. Well, when he comes, she says he's going to tell us all things. And that's a true statement. And Christ turns to her and says, I who speak to you am he. Even in that, you see, he's saying, who who are you going to worship? You're going to do it on the mountain this way? No, that's mixed with a lot of error. Are you going to go down here to Jerusalem and and worship at the temple even as ordained? No, because even that, it's pointing to the reality of Jesus Christ. And he says, I am he. Worship. In spirit and truth, 
The worship is to worship him, Jesus Christ. These rituals have always served as a pointer. In fact, don't take my word for it. Back to Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 5. Notice this again. I've emphasized it before, and I'll say it one more time. Verse 5, what, what, what did they do? What did these religious rituals do? They serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. They were installed to picture reality. What is reality? Heaven. The immaterial. The, the abode of God, we might think of. The, the, these physical aspects were only pointers too. And it says it's, it's, it's a copy in a sense. Copy in a sense that, that it isn't the true in that sense. Now, not true versus false here. It's true in that which is real. And that which points to something that is real. The visible pointed to the greater invisible from an earthly perspective, if you will. Now, I want you to look at this, and we'll see with the time. (coughs) Verse 5, it continues. When Moses was about to erect the tent, this would be what we think of as the tabernacle, is another way, the place of worship, he was instructed by God, saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. It serves as a copy and a shadow of that which is true. So I want you to note here how particular he is that you would do everything in this place of worship according to what God had instructed. He's referring to a section we know as Exodus 25. And I won't go through the whole chapter. I encourage you to consider reading it. If you haven't read through the Old Testament, highly recommend it. And here is a connection. But if you want to turn there, I'll highlight a couple of verses along the way. Exodus chapter 25. Here's what he's referencing to this preacher in Hebrews. Exodus 25. The Lord says to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. This is free will giving from the heart. And this contribution then that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, Tanned ram skins, goat skins, zacchaeus wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, stones for setting, for the ephod, and for the breast piece. This would be the breast piece on the uh, on the priest. He says, then take all these items specifically and identifies what they are. And let them make for me a sanctuary. That's a place set aside for you to worship God. That I may dwell in their midst. It it isn't that, that God wasn't with them. It's that God is immaterial, spirit. And so here mankind, well, is God around or not? Oh yeah, we have this tent 
this tabernacle that's instructed a specific way, the way God had ordered it. Why? To remind us that God is with us. That's the point. And notice verse 9 here in Exodus 25. He says, Exactly as I show you concerning the tabernacle, all of its furniture, you shall make it. He goes on to detail exactly what needs to be done. He's specific in how religious practices are to be engaged in. And in this circumstance, he has to make and put a place for the ark, the ark of the covenant, as we would call it, a table for bread, and the lampstand. All of those are designed specifically to point to Christ. And then you can drop down to verse 40, and as he concludes this section, and see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. All of those details that are included, they were all regulated by God, demonstrating that God will not be worshipped in an arbitrary way. In the, man, in the mind of man. There is a point in the way this was structured and ordered because it would most glorify him as it pointed to Jesus Christ. Jesus would remind his detractors, those that would reject his teaching, John 5, 46, I'll quote it for you. He says, if you believe Moses, this is what, that comes from that section, for example, in all of the Old Covenant. If you believe Moses, you would believe me. Why? Because he wrote of me. I'm arguing all that was written points to Christ. This is why it has to be done exactly in that way. It isn't an arbitrary way. And I'll just say a word of caution here, by the way, as you look through the Old Testament and as you read through all the details that are given, be careful not to push too hard on what is specifically said to attribute each aspect in a certain way that you think in your mind that they point to Christ. They do point generally to Christ. Specifically, we can be assured of those things that are explained by inspired authors in the New Testament of those specific things that do absolutely point to Christ. Jesus himself said, you know, I'm the light of the world. That, that lampstand is clearly there to point to Christ who is the light. Right? The bread, I, I am the bread of life. You know, so those types of things are explained. But, uh, it, it, but some of the specifics of the, the beauty of the garments and the pageantry and the gold and so forth, uh, we have to be careful not to push too far, but to recognize in a general sense the point. God orchestrated, regulated, all of that, ordained it, and it had a purpose. It points to Jesus Christ. Those practices pointed to our great high priest. They were shadows. 
the substance and the reality has now come. Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who we worship in spirit and truth, is the head of the church. Ephesians 1, Paul would describe Christ when he says he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his, his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ then is the head. He is the one in authority. And those that serve Christ in whichever way they're called, even those of us who might minister in his word, are simply that. Minister, by the way, means servant. <laughs> Paul would make that clear in describing his ministry. You can find it. I'll read it for you in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, how should you regard us? Regard us as servants and stewards of the mysteries of God. The, the mystery is that which was uh, previously unknown, but now has been made known through Christ. All of these dots have been connected. And what do those who proclaim it, how do they consider themselves a servant or a slave of Jesus Christ, who is the head and has a great responsibility, and hence the idea of a steward. And our job isn't to be creative, to be cool, to come up with new ways of accomplishing stuff so that we can get the church built. It's simply to serve Christ and to be a steward of what he has given us. We can't create orders of worship from our own mind. The Old Testament communicates that very clearly in that exact pattern of worship. Initially, that revelation that was given to Moses, then if it was violated, created great disorder and failure. Leviticus chapter 10, that passage opens up with the sons of Aaron. Aaron was the high priest, but his sons, Nadab and Abihu, they decided they would engage in something they weren't authorized to do. They took a censer and put fire in it laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. That's the problem. They thought they were doing something, but they, they didn't have the authority to do so because they were not commanded by God to do so. And the response to that is that fire came down from the Lord, consumed them, and they died. Moses turns to Aaron and says, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. It doesn't glorify God to worship him in your own way. In an unauthorized way. In a way that he has not commanded 
King Saul, if you remember in 1 Samuel 12, he tries the same kind of thing. It results in him losing his position. Remember Uzzah in 1 Samuel 6? Just something real simple. The ark was about to fall off a wagon, and he tries to help it. God doesn't need help. And besides that, they weren't supposed to put it on an oxen cart anyway. The priests were supposed to carry it with poles, and if they had all done the right thing, no one would have died. But he died. He said, well, that's the old covenant. How about in the new? I don't know. We just read in Acts chapter 5 about Ananias and Sapphira. Do we need to repeat that? What did they do? They came in part of worship, and they just decided to be deceitful and lie about it. God doesn't always bring about that kind of immediate response, but he does from time to time, and he did then. In Acts chapter 8, we read about Simon the magician. He thought he could buy his way into the kingdom of God and, and get all these tricks, if you will, so he could exalt himself. They're false teachers that are mentioned a lot in Scripture, in particular from 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, Hymenaeus, Alexander, and Philetus. They were sent out to Satan to learn not to, to blaspheme. That is, oh, they, they, they had a new teaching, a different way to communicate the truth. They were not being subject to Christ, who is the head of the church. Christ, who has given us his word to follow. They thought they would come up with something, well, that sounds a little bit more contemporary. Maybe something that would fit more culturally appropriate. This doesn't honor God. And it's a fearful thing to do. Turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Paul will address that here to some degree to the church of Colossae. And it is something that was ongoing in the first century, as you understand, just like the preacher in Hebrews, where people were brought up in their cultural religious system. A new covenant has come in Christ, and we'll unpack that in weeks to come. They're under the new covenant, and yet they're being drawn back, people even within the church, to those aspects, those rules and regulations of the old covenant. And I hope you understand, I'm not saying those rules and regulations were wrong. They were absolutely right. They were ordained by God, but they had an expiration date. You know what? When it is fulfilled, it was completed by Christ. So they no longer point. Christ has fulfilled them. So look to Christ is the point. And so Paul would make that argument here to the church at Colossae, verse 16 of chapter 2. He says, don't let anyone pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. What is that? That's, that's all of these regulations that were specifically put in place. 
These are, and he says the same phraseology, verse 17. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Each one of those aspects, it wasn't going to to make them better. You don't eat the Daniel diet, for example, to all of a sudden get right with God. You, You know what helped Daniel and his children? It was obedience to God. That's what it was. And it was God's work in their life. These physical substances don't bring about life. Christ does. These physical elements, as true and right they are in the perspectives in which they are given, they all had a, a, a pointing, if you will, to the perfection that is in Jesus Christ. The substance belongs to Christ. That's the line to remember. So then in his section here, in verse 18, in his time, he says, they don't let anybody disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on of detail about visions and puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. Those are some of the circumstances that was going on then. You can certainly apply it to some of the nonsense that's going on today in worship of God. Just things about your own mind that you come up with, your own vision, your own ideas. But notice here, and not holding fast to the head. That is what, what, what head is he talking about in this analogy? Jesus Christ, from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, and grows with growth that is from God. And that's the distinction he's making, that the spiritual growth, the growth of God's people come about through Jesus Christ, not through men, not through regulations, not through rituals, but through Christ, the reality. He explains it here in verse 20. "If, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't, don't touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to, and this is key, precepts, hum, human precepts and teaching. And I think this is the profound point, and I circled this, verse 23. These things have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. You know what stops it? You need a dynamic change of heart. We call it regeneration. We call it new birth. We call it new life, a new disposition. It it isn't these rules and regulations that are going to change any of that. It is the reality who is the person of Jesus Christ. Look to him. It's not suggesting just go wild. Of course not in your life. It's recognizing all of these structures, all of these elements that you might put many of them which would be very good and very helpful, they're not going to really change your heart. They can change external, what people think and see about you. It doesn't change your own heart. 
you're, you're not going to grow in Christ, to grow in grace and the knowledge of Christ by having a regular attendance within the church, as much as I'd like for you to be regularly attend. But that's not going to bring it about. It's going to be the work of Jesus Christ in your heart. Spurgeon, in his time, in the 1800s, <laughs> so a little while ago, he commented on this concept. He said, uh, carnal men in one of three ways, either God is ador- adored by our outward symbols, as among Brahmas, he's talking about the Hindus because they had a big influence in England, Romanists, he's talking about the Roman Catholic Church, or the Pusiites, that's our Oxford movement of that time where they were advocating the Protestants and the Catholics get together. I think we did that here in our country. Oh, I, I digress. Any case, he says, and all other idolaters, or else he has worshipped through ritualism as among too many who claim to be orthodox, who contend for a prearranged and unbelieving forms, written or unwritten as the case may be, or else men show an utter indifference to God altogether and then rush into superstitious reverence for something or other which is evil, and therefore to be dreaded and spoken of with all. This is against this command. The human mind is always dashing itself in one shape or another. Idolatry is the ruling religion of mankind. What's real? And what should we do? How do we engage in then real worship and not superstitious, ritualistic, even if some of these elements are important, so what would we do? We use a term called the regulative principle of worship, which is a catch-all phrase, I think, to help explain what we're talking about. Derek Thomas explains it this way. The regulative principle of worship states that the corporate worship of God is to be founded upon the specific directions of Scripture. I think that's a well said. And so under the old covenant, you understand it would apply there too, wouldn't it? Because they were given specific instructions on how to worship. In the New Testament, or New Covenant, how would we have these specific directions of Scripture? The Reformers had to address that. Because there were a lot of traditions of men that really kind of obscured worship and clouded it quite a bit. Calvin put it this way, although he didn't use the term regulative, but you can see that in the way he's explaining. He says, we may not adopt any device in our worship which seems to fit ourselves, but to look at the injunctions of him who alone is entitled to prescribe. He's talking about Jesus Christ. Therefore, if we would have him approve our worship, this rule, which he everywhere enforces in the utmost strictness, must be carefully observed. God disapproves of all modes of worship not expressly sanctioned by his word. And I think that's a good way to put it, sanctioned. Not that it's specified in its 
exact nature of the, in the old covenant, but sanctioned. That is regulated, if you will, by those things that are prescribed in Scripture. I thought about this and did a lot of reading on it as well. And if you have anything to add to how we would formulate those specific things that Christ gave us, and we have in the New Testament on how to carry about worship, uh, I'd be glad to hear from you. But as I thought about it, I came up with, with at least seven things that would characterize our worship today. And they aren't necessarily in any particular order. But one is prayer. If you read through the New Testament, you're going to find a lot of allusions to prayer, to call to pray. If you remember early on, as the church began in Acts chapter 1, they were gathered together in one accord, that is in unity. And what were they doing? They were devoting themselves to prayer. The men and the women, together, praying. Paul would tell the church in Rome, who would suffer great persecution, to be patient in the midst of their tribulation and to be constant in prayer. To the church at Ephesus, he would remind them, to pray at all times in the Spirit, that is, in the Holy Spirit, and making prayer and supplication to keep alert. To the church at Thessalonica, he would simply say in 5.17, pray without ceasing. That is, make your life and lifestyle a, prayer, a, 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 a communion with God in prayer. To the church at Colossae, he says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Colossians 4.2. God has ordained prayer within the church, and this is why we engage in prayer in a constant way. The second thing is that is characteristic and regulated by Christ within the church as we gather to worship is reading of the scriptures. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul would tell his protege, Timothy, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. This is one of the reasons why you'll find Scripture to be read here on a regular basis. We read a lot of Scriptures. You say, well, they didn't have the Bibles like we have. They didn't have the electronic devices where you could just pull up the Bible. That is true. So why are you still including the reading of Scripture? Well, for a lot of reasons, but one of them is because we don't read it enough. Whatever we read, it isn't enough, right? You agree? And because it has a, an effective work, and that is faith is going to come through hearing and hearing the words of Christ, Romans ten seventeen. This is why we make this a very important part, and I encourage you to listen when the scriptures are read, and I appreciate the men reading and sometimes explaining even the context in which they're given so that you can then um, engage your own mind so that for some might come to faith, but others would grow in faith through hearing 
of his word. Paul would tell his young Timothy and be reminded in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy. He tells him as a, as a young man, Paul thought of him as a fatherly figure to Timothy. He says, you continue in what you have learned and believed and knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. That is the scripture. And what is the scripture going to do? It's going to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. We read it because this is the only source of absolute truth. He would say then all scripture, 2 Timothy 3, 16, all scripture is breathed out by God. It's, it's the very breath of God. And so why would you read it? Because it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I can't think of much better to do with our time than to read God's word. A third aspect ordered by Christ in the worship of his saints is the proclamation of his word. We call it preaching, and this is why we do this. And it's a significant part. A significant part of our worship, and particularly in sometimes in compared to other places. I'll, I'll, you're familiar with this, but I'll, I'll read it for you if you want to turn there. Second Timothy chapter 4. Paul then gives this firm charge to his protege, Timothy, who will take over the church at Ephesus. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. That's a pretty strong charge, isn't it? So, so based on Christ, this is your charge. What is his charge, young man? Preach the word. That's it. It means to herald. It means to proclaim. It means to speak with great authority. It, this isn't the idea of giving uh, a, a little lecture on some subject and a discussion. And all of that's good, but here the command is to make a central part of our worship simply to this, to proclaim the very words of Christ. Not our words, not our ideas, but his. In his authority. And as it comes some people might want to hear it, some might not. That's this idea of ready in season and out. But ultimately, with it, you'll do what? You will reprove. You will rebuke. You will exhort. Exhort means to encourage, if you will, along the way, because it is very encouraging. But there are times in which you have to rebuke and reprove and do so with complete patience and teaching. In other words, explain it along the way. This is a central element to what we do. Paul would tell the church at Corinth simply this in 1 Corinthians 1, we, we, preach, we preach Christ. That's it. We proclaim him. Yeah, he says, I know it's a stumbling block to the Jews because they, 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 they killed him. They don't want to hear it. But Paul says, well, we preach it anyway. We proclaim it anyway. 
And to the Gentiles, they think it's dumb. They think it's foolishness, as he would put it. But we preach it anyway to those who think it's foolishness. So why do we do that? Because to those that are called, God uses the instrumentality of his proclaimed word to call people to salvation. To bring the light of life to their heart. Both Jews and Greeks. Both groups. Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. All of a sudden, I was talking to somebody earlier. All of a sudden, it just means everything. It meant nothing or little. Maybe you knew about it, had knowledge. Then all of a sudden, it's, it's everything. This is the dynamic work of the Holy Spirit through the instrumentality of his word, his truth. Because God is stronger than men. A fourth thing that should characterize our heavenly worship, our true worship, has been expressed in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. It's singing. And this is why we sing. We don't get up here and sing just to fill some time. This is what Christ has ordained in his church. And to actually sing and I don't, I'll be careful here. Oh, maybe I won't. <laughs> Somebody think about it. I understand the modern thing. They'll, they'll put a few performers up here and you listen to them sing. And I just don't see it. I think it's distracting. You know what I like to do? Hear you sing. I like to sing with you. There's a certain community about that when we sing together as God's people. I do love the instruments to help us stay in time and in, on key. That's helpful. But, but we don't even need that, and we've had to do it from time to time. And God will hear our praises together, collectively. And I want to encourage you as you come to worship to participate in a sing. And how do you do it? You think about what's being said and the more you grow in Christ and the knowledge of the Lord, the more meaningful that becomes. Each aspect. There are times I nearly weep through the hymns as we sing them because of what they say and how they say it in such a beautiful, poetic way. But, but it's, it's a structure in which great things can be communicated. Paul would tell the church at Ephesus, don't get drunk with wine. That's debauchery but be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's saying, look, don't don't allow some other substance to to control you. Be controlled by the Holy Spirit. What does it look like when you're controlled by the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit who indwells all believers, but you you may not be giving him access and full control. How does it how does what does it look like? Well, here he's expressing it this way of being controlled with the Spirit in verse nineteen of Ephesians five, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We we know what the psalms are, and of course they're written in Hebrew, and a little harder for us to sing them. But the idea here's worship songs that glorify God and are written in a specific way. And I'm thankful, Blake, that you've been able to 
pull a few up and allow us to sing and add some tunes to them and maybe modify them a little bit. Hymns, those are songs that speak of the glory of Christ. We sing hymns. Spiritual songs, I would say that's more about like just the gospel personal in your own life. they're, They're not, I don't think that the point of that is to have any uh, absolute and specific things, but the, in general, those types of songs that glorify Christ, that res, uh, respond from our heart in praising Him, in fact, that's what it says. Singing and making melody where? In your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The fifth element of our worship, true worship, heavenly worship that has been ordained by Christ in this day is through believers' baptism. It isn't the baptism of ritual in which we wash away somebody's original sin. That's nonsense. Actually, it's worse than nonsense. I guess it's blasphemy because only Christ, the only blood of Christ can wash away sin. But we're called to baptize. Christ said, under my authority, in Matthew chapter 28, he says, make disciples of all nations and do, and do what? Once they become a follower of Christ. He said, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That is, they would have some sort of concept and knowledge very much so of God. They would, they would know God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They would know something theologically about the triune nature of God. And then beyond that, you you will baptize them in that, that is, immerse them in it. Not that baptism does any type of cleansing or any kind of saving. It is the ritual in which we do that points to the reality of our immersion in Jesus Christ. It's a reminder. And I'll tell you, that's a blessed time to hear people confess Jesus Christ as Lord before men. And I think that's where that is intended to be conveyed ultimately within the body of Christ who also gather around and say yes and amen. We hear your testimony, your commitment to Christ and are in allegiance with you. The sixth thing that is a fundamental element of real and true worship is the what we would call the Lord's Supper or communion. Again, we're, we're not doing some sort of Eucharist sacrifice, representing Christ's blood. He sacrificed once for all. So that's not our elements. Our elements are the ones that Christ talked about in 1 Corinthians 11, which we, we practice at least once a month. And that is, he says, this, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. This bread is my body. Take those two elements and for what purpose? To do this in remembrance of me. That ritual will not infuse grace into your soul. It doesn't bring about a a closer uh, communion with God. It reminds you of the communion you have with him through Christ Jesus. And by the way, if you take it in an unworthy manner, that is with living a life of unrepentant sin, you'll do so to your own demise. 
Now, I thought about that, and that's typically the elements that are mentioned. But as I thought through it, and if you have more, I'd be glad to hear from you. Maybe not today, but get to me later. But as I thought about it, one more element that is prescribed in Scripture that is part of our true heavenly worship as we come to worship Christ, and that is simply the gathering itself. Andy alluded to it, and we didn't talk about it before, but you did a good job in talking through our um, purpose of coming together. And I'll read you this scripture and finish off with this. If you want to turn there, you can, or just listen. A lot of people quote Hebrews 10.25 as a way to remind people don't neglect coming together for church because it's important. And that's good, and it is. But we don't neglect the not gathering here because, oh, we're going to get in trouble with God or we won't be a good Christian or something like that, but because our gathering is purposeful. Let me read the text so you could look at it. I'll just back up to verse 23 in Hebrews 10. The call is for us to hold fast to our confession of hope without wavering. Because he promised is faithful. So we look to Christ who is always faithful. We, we have to hold fast. And we do so because Christ is holding fast to us. It's a great concept, isn't it? And then here's the call, verse 24. So then based on that, or based of our union in Christ and, and our desire to hold fast, that is to continue in the faith, to continue without wavering, how will we do this? Verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another in, to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some is, but instead encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day dawning near. I have a mission and a mandate by God to show up here on Sunday morning and proclaim and preach Christ. You have a mission and a mandate by God to gather together to encourage one another. To be encouraged yourself to hold fast your confession, looking to Christ, but here is, a, here is a call to actively think about how can I be encouraging to someone else? How could I stir them up to those things that glorify God? That's worship. That's worship of God. That's true worship. That's heavenly worship. And note this, all the more as you see the day dawning near. Things aren't getting better, they're getting worse. You've probably seen more than you want to see. I've seen some things that I don't care to share. But we need to encourage one another. And that worships God. This worship is ultimately regulated by our high priest. Who intercedes for us as we pray who gave us those very scriptures, they speak of him, who empowers our proclamation of this truth, who, who is with his saints as they sing together. 
who is confessed as Lord when we baptize, who is communed when we receive those elements, and is communicated ultimately as we gather together to worship him. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, we're thankful for our great high priest, Jesus Christ. And to a great degree, we no longer really worship in shadows, but in the light of the revelation given to us through your divine word. I pray, Father, that you will draw us closer to Christ and one another particularly as we see the evil days drawing near. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'll give you a moment to respond to Christ in the way he has spoken to you. If you want to confess him as Lord even now, please do so. But respond to him and not to me. Take a moment now. give us a glimpse of your grace and glory through Jesus Christ our Lord I pray in his name amen all right I can't remember the title but I love that hymn what's the number 346 you want to sing that one together and let me hear you guys sing it out now 346 I like changing it up occasionally. This church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's sing it together. Let's stand.
go ahead and pray and we'll be dismissed. Now may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Amen and amen. You're dismissed.